yeah awkward is is our brand <laughs> we uh we have a, a guest today sometimes it goes by mark collier but other times he goes by sparky mm, that's true this is true yes it's awesome to be on here this is great what do you want people to know about you oh geez about me uh well, I mean, I guess we start with, I, I, I'll tell you why I became Sparky. So my, my, I used to have a great dame named Sparky and, you know, he died many years ago. And so, you know, when I was actually signing up for uh, Yahoo Messenger way back in the day and I was like, I needed a login and I was so ignorant about Messenger. I didn't realize that like my login was going to be my identity. And I was like, well, I'll just put Sparky Collier in there and then, I started using it. I'm like, oh, okay, so now I'm, this is actually how instant messaging works, that you're, that's now my identity, and then I just went with it. So now it's on Twitter and everywhere else, and I still, you know, miss my Great Dane. I will get another Great Dane, but, you know, it's been, I've been raising, like, actual children for a while, and the Great Danes are big, so I don't know. I've also been working on open source for a while, and... Uh, actual children are a lot of work. What's that? I said actual children are a lot of I know. It's, I got to be honest with you. People are like, well, a dog is kind of like the way no, it's nothing like that at all. It's really <laughs> not. I'm sorry. But, you know, people, I think that once they have kids, it's kind of like this secret thing. We don't tell people about kids, like how hard it is, or if we're not supposed to, we're supposed to be like, yeah, it's sort of like having a dog. Like, no, it's actually really, really hard. But it's amazing. I've got two, two and daughters. And open, uh, source, open source projects are kind of like children, too. They are. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. It's a really good point. You know, I sort of like got involved in open source when I was at Yahoo. Um, some folks that I work with there just kind of introduced me to the whole idea of it. And, um, you know, uh, I, was, I was sort of in, I was doing business development. And, you know, one of the things I kind of I started off in like a really tech technical role like early on in my career. And I was in like a lab doing performance testing, which was like super cool right out of college, just like the latest gear, the latest CPUs and GPUs and just testing it. And it was like this nerd dream job. Like we had a, a badge reader. And I remember our favorite thing was that like the marketing people couldn't come in. <laughs> so like I've clearly gone like totally the other All opposite. circle. But yeah, I, when I started off, like we called them the jackals, like the marketing jackals. And it was like having a, being on the other side of a badger, I was like, I will never go to the other side. And then like a couple of years in, I was like, these product managers seem to be having lots, like they're making all these decisions. Like I could be part of that. So I'm like, I'm into product management. Long story short, you know, ended up. Uh, not to derail this thread, but just. <laughs> That's just a really long answer. Reflect on why, why the engineers think the marketing people are jackals. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like that we're in this sort of technology industry. And so the technology is the thing that if you're really close to it, seems like the, you know, the only thing that's real. And, you know, it turns out that like when you talk to customers or you try to communicate things like in reality, there is a lot of value in sort of explaining things more simply. But if you're really close to it, it seems like the marketers just don't understand or they're just oversimplifying or they're glossing over it or they're sort of exaggerating all the time, which that's all those things are true. It just turns out that there's actually some value. <laughs> so, you know, oversimplifying things actually is, is, you know, I think there's, 
people say like making something simpler is actually the hardest thing in technology. And I'm not going to say like marketers like magically are the solution to that. But I think that's, that's, that's the reaction is like, wow, these people, they seem to be getting all the credit and they're up on stage and they're sort of like, you know, getting whatever, uh, I don't know. It's like the glory and stuff, but they seem to know less about it than I do. So like, what, what is with these marketing jackals, you know, that's, that's I mean, what I thought. There's something to be said though, about like being able to communicate like and translate from the engineer to the customer and like sometimes people do it wrong like I see these blog posts that are just like absolute shit um and they're just like they're just bad in general because it it, like doesn't reflect the value but doing it right is actually insanely valuable I feel like yeah let's let's drag this farther I think marketing is actually somewhat busted right now Mm. and that we're in this world that's in between where all the medium that most people are really driving decisions about especially kind of software enable mm-hmm. a lot of, of true engagement and, yeah. and even like expertise being exchanged uh-huh. where, where marketing in most places has uh, a mindset that's, that's kind of centered in a broadcast only medium yeah. and, and chases vanity metrics to justify its existence. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think it's almost like, you know, the people that are really good at sort of this, this area of translating and, and communicating between stakeholders, I almost want to like not give them a marketing title. Cause I feel like it either is giving them a little bit of the wrong direction or they're just going to be mis- misunderstood. Like just the word marketing. Maybe I mean, it really is marketing, but it's also like, it's, it's this new way. And, and I think this is also, some of the limbo that we're in with uh, conversations around uh, developer relations, developer advocacy, where mm-hmm. it's essentially a marketing function, but it's a very technical discussion or, or the, yeah. of the technology are, are, are well represented. Yeah. And I, I would say like, just from my experience, like, you know, being at the open sector foundation and like, you know, our role is kind of like this, small close-knit team that's helping a very large community all over the world and, and it's, it's a very unusual job that doesn't really fit any any mold but like I often uh, sort of say you know what we're actually trying to do is communications and sort of connecting people and helping them you know talk to each other and exchange knowledge so that you know, each person gets a little bit of knowledge from the other person and like that's just kind of like the nature of what we're doing that it's uh, most of the time, the, the, the best way we're going to help achieve our mission. Um, and, and whether you call it marketing or not, you know, it's, it's oftentimes like not the right word or, or it actually makes you think that we should measure it in a way that isn't the right way to measure it. It's really more about like, I hate to say just call like exchanging facts because that sounds like really dry. But I mean, like the knowledge of how to do things in cloud and an open source is an art form and a science. And it's not just dry facts. It's, that's why it's so important to get together in person or on zoom and like have conversations. Like conversations are so important because there's just such a human factor to, to technology. I mean, let's face it. It like barely works most of the time. It's almost like, it's almost like humans are humans. Humans are humans. We need these like human things. Yeah. I do feel like people get attached to words though. And then it's almost like you lose the why 
you are even doing it in the first place. And they're like, oh, we need X because everyone else has X. And it's like, actually, you probably don't need X. Um, yeah. I think you're totally right. But that's the fashion of our tribe. And we need the, you know, we need to be legitimately members of this tribe that's adopted this, this X. Yeah. Tribe ops. No, I mean, fashion and tribalism drive 99% of our decisions. The, so what's the transition from this business marketing thing into open source and biz dev and then ultimately yeah. to where you are now? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, I just kind of uh, tried on different kind of jobs within different companies and the tech and then the sort of product management, product marketing, and then I did business development. And business development's kind of where I found my jam, my, my people was like, uh, I, I work with this this amazing guy named Steve Raymond, who's uh, Steve Ray on Twitter. Um, he's founded a bunch of companies since we worked together way, way back in the day. But just, just a really super awesome, smart guy and sort of taught me about how partnerships work. And one of the things I learned from that experience was when you get two companies together and you can get them to look to, at their mutual interests and sort of set aside like the idea that one company, is, which is the one you're at, has to rule the world you make a real partnership, you can create more value. And to me, that was just like super intellectually interesting. I had like, you know, studied economics and stuff and, and, and a little bit of philosophy in college, just enough to, you know, not quite drop out. Um, and then, you know, I, I just, I thought it was like super cool. It's like you're bringing people together and there's a little bit of like putting aside your ego and let's, let's create something more. So I learned that like putting two companies together, creating more value was like something I was uh, really motivated by and, and did some, some of that work. And then I sort of learned through that process when I worked at Yahoo. So my company that I worked for got acquired by Yahoo. So Music Match was the software company for music stuff. I got acquired by Yahoo. And I got really exp exposed to open source. Um, and I had a little bit, you know, earlier Linux dabbling and stuff like that from when I was working in a lab. But basically, you know, I got... I sort of like started looking at open source again more more carefully in WordPress specifically. I met you know met uh, Matt Mullaweg and if I'm even pronouncing that right a few times. A guy that I worked with knew him and stuff. So I just started like this light bulb went off. Like okay, if you can take two companies and create more value if they actually cooperate, uh, and it's not just a, a procurement exercise. It's not a zero sum game. Like we're actually going to create net new value because we're going to set aside, you know, our differences and work together. Open source is just kind of like that, just, you know, times a times a thousand or million. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's companies and individuals sort of collectively working on something where none of them get to own it exclusively, but they all get to benefit from, the results of it and it just kind of blew my mind i was like this is this is so powerful and and so you know when i when i left yahoo i went to join rackspace and the cloud computing was just sort of getting going and i that was kind of what made me want to join rackspace is they had one of the first clouds around the time you know a little after amazon or around that time so i saw like cloud computing and self-service computing is like this is obviously going to be a big thing and very shortly after i joined I was actually at, at a structure in San Francisco and I saw this panel with Matt from WordPress on it. And he said, these companies that are trying to compete with, with big cloud providers, 
they need to understand that the only way they're going to get leverage is with open source. And, you know, having studied economics and stuff and done different business deals, like the, the idea of leverage is, you know, is kind of like baked into my thinking. And I was like, man, he is so right. So I kind of went back and, uh, and evangelized that inside of, of Rackspace. I'm like, we are need to have an army of developers developing a, a piece of technology for us to succeed in cloud. We can't do it on our own. We don't need to own it exclusively, but we need access to it. Open source is, is just like, it is just makes, makes a lot of sense. And it took a long time. No, it took a few months, it took a while to kind of get everybody on board, but that kind of ultimately led to OpenStack. So that's probably a good so, stuff. Uh, I got so many questions. Uh, <laughs> the, like, like let's unwind a little bit to this notion of business development and like being able to bring two companies together and work together to create value. Like, I think this is true in, in, in this ideal philosophical sense. Um, in practice though, I, I find a couple things, you know, just watching patterns across my career. Uh, one is that the people doing the business development often have very little power or leverage to, to execute some of the things that might be beneficial to all parties. Mm -hmm. And then, and then also uh, when you get to the point where that is even possible, then there's lots of these things where it, like it, it gets hard work actual right. money. Like how's the money flow? And, and it's like, Oh, like here's this thing we could do and we help our customers and try this thing. And it's like, well, okay, well who gets paid and, and how do they get paid? And then, and then like a lot of this stuff kind of breaks down and then you take that into the open source world where it's like, okay, now we're going to work together and we're going to create this stuff and we're going to give it away. Or, mm -hmm. or, you know, it's like, how, how do we, it just makes it even more complicated. And I think this, and we can we can have more conversations about um, this in general or specific around OpenStack, but it, like it creates this weird dynamic where even though you're kind of working together, like you're not always working together. Mm -hmm. right? And and I don't know, like that's that's a question slash comment. Like, how do you see from the biz dev perspective, like dragging into where where we are now, like a real alignment of of these dis different interests in yeah. in general or in specific. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is like in the biz dev example, like uh, some of it, it sort of comes down to like persuading people in storytelling and sort of like getting people bought in to the concept that we're going to make more money together, or we're going to be more successful at our goals together. And, and, and in fact, one of the things I learned, you know, in a few times throughout my career is that like the internal cell is actually harder than the external cell. So to your 90, point, like 90% 90 of the job is convincing the other company. And then the other 90% is convincing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, and then there's finance and they want an update, but no, I think, how are we going to recognize the revenue? No, I don't want to go down that hole, but I think, you know, it's, you're absolutely right. And it's sort of like the, the internal alignment, like, it, I've definitely seen partnerships go south where, you know, people at each company saw eye to eye, but they didn't have buy-in up and down the chain. And, and then that, and that has to go up to the GM or at least like the product and engineer. Like when you don't have alignment and you just kind of like go blindly sign a deal and you, maybe you got some sign off, but like it just, there wasn't real commitment from both parties. I mean, that, that, that is probably happens more often than not. And it becomes like a paper release. And then we all kind of just try to forget that it ever happened. And, you know, and, and honestly, I actually think, <laughs> I actually think in my opinion, 
more often acquisitions fail than partnerships, which is interesting because it's so much, you would think a higher bar, like, well, we're going to buy a company. So like, we better really think this through, but I actually have kind of a, I don't know. I've been, I've been involved in corp dev and stuff from different sides of it. I was at a company that got acquired and then I was at Rackspace, we acquired some companies and it's, it's, it's hard. I guess it's, it's sort of like, it's always um, hypotheticals like playing, you know, what if, like, what if we didn't buy them or if we did buy them, we integrated them differently. But I just, I think acquisition is a fascinating thing. That's kind of another. I, I agree with that, to be honest. I, I mean, I feel like I've seen a lot of things get acquired and then either the people I know there become miserable or it just disappears off the face of the planet. And you're like, wait, what happened? Where did it go? And it's like, oh, it got sucked into the corporate body or whatever. Yeah, I just, I think that's such a fascinating thing because it happens all the time. And um, like, I guess my gut instinct from observing it from, you know, the buy side and the sell side or whatever is that I think companies often miss the fact that the reason they needed to acquire this company is because they didn't inherently have the culture or the instincts or the DNA, I guess, uh, to be good at that thing. So they needed to go buy it. But then the humility didn't really come along for the ride of like, we couldn't do this without them. It's kind of like, now we own them, so we're good at it. And it's like, "Mm, well, if you don't really listen to the people that we're doing it better than you could do it. Cause it's very common to, for a company to try to be successful in a market, have limited success as, you know, especially big companies with lots of money. Like we can do it. We don't need anybody else. And then they run, they realize they can't. And so then they go buy the company that did it better, but then it, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem because they still sort of think like the same people still run the place. <laughs> so I don't know. It's, it's interesting, I, but it just keeps happening. So. So yeah, you get them in and then you smother them to death with a pillow. Yeah, no, it's like the new puppy everyone wants to pet, but then (laughs) soon it has no hair and everyone's questioning why. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I guess in the final analysis, there probably are some acquisitions where the actual result was, would be considered good by somebody because they just smothered a competitor, which is, you know, a really sad way. I, to I had a, I had a mentor uh, CEO tell me that in his opinion, 80% of the acquisitions were designed to kill the company. Yeah. I, that's like something I've kind of come around to realize. Like I used to just think like, wow, why are these people keep doing this thing that doesn't seem to work? And I realized, you know, maybe it's actually working more often than I think for what they actually want. Works as designed, won't fix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, close the bug. That's crazy. Actually, that makes a lot of sense as to the actual result because then they were successful. So, you know, they met their OKR. They didn't have this pesky competitor anymore. So I guess that that was the problem they were solving for. They solved it, but I don't know. It's just a little depressing, but I guess, you know, there's always more money around and new startups and new things and, and the, the, the cycle of life continues. And, and so you got, you got enamored with open source, you get into Rackspace, OpenStack is born. Yeah. That was an exciting time. Yeah, it was super crazy. I mean, I was just thinking the other day, like, uh, I, I went out to the first, I think it was the first meetup in, in the Bay Area for Open OpenStack. 
And I don't remember, like maybe 50 people there or something like that. And it was just like mind blowing. It was like, holy shit, 50 people are showing up here. I mean, I know there's like free pizza and beer and it was at a, God, was it at that? Hacker. The little make the little maker space down the yeah. beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like Hacker House or whatever it was called. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was there. Were you were you at that? I was there. Yeah, okay. Right. And Vish was there and Brett Pyatt and I don't know. I, my memory is extremely bad, but I just remember like I know it's free pizza and beer, but like what all the Ansel Labs guys were there. So. Oh, yes. Absolutely, yeah. The beard. Yeah. We had the beard. We had, you know, Vish, who has a Indian name but looks like a six foot four Viking. <laughs> I was just thinking the other day, like, I need to catch up with Vish. I'm like, like, does he understand what the code he wrote is doing right now? I mean, like, like just it's just mind-boggling, you know, like the this the largest rail company in the world, which of course is in China, runs OpenStack for the software that help, helps them like manage a billion tickets a year, you know, which is just like a crazy thing, but it's like, there's no doubt that it's a, a big chunk of the code in Nova that's running and their production is written by him. I mean, huge amounts of it. It's going to be doing that for decades, you know, like that doesn't get ripped out. So I don't know. It's just the foreseeable future. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just crazy, but yeah. So we had that meetup and then, I was just like, God, man, there's just like something to this. And, and I think, I think what one of the things that was so, such an interesting part about that moment and that little like first year or whatever was like, we literally had just an idea. I mean, the Nova code was essentially didn't exist. It was, it was a, a prototype at best. I mean, I don't even think, I don't even know if we had the prototype. I mean, it was basically like, I think, Jesse and Vision. Uh, it was a twinkle in Anso Lab's eye. Yeah, like ter I think Termi wrote it in a weekend or whatever. I mean, it was it was like almost nothing. And we had Swift, which is you know object storage. So that was like a thing, but I mean that's not going to build you a whole cloud. No, I mean it's great software, and it ex it was the only thing that existed that worked. But I mean, basically, it was just like, hey, we have an idea. How about we get together with a bunch of people who want to see you know like an open alternative or just want to see like a standard emerge that's open source for running infrastructure as a service who's interested. And it was just like, that was pretty much the whole thing. And it was just like, it was, it's, and it's kind of goes back to that. The thing about partnerships and business, it's like, it's common interest. Like how many people have this interest in common? And it was nothing but just like an outcome that they all wanted. And, you know, we can sit here like nine years later and go, you know, which of those dreams came true and not definitely not all of them, but, um, but a lot of things happened along the way differently than we could have ever imagined. Like I never thought like cell phones with networks would use OpenStack. Like I had no freaking clue of that. So like there were sort of like lots of uh, positive and negative and, and just wild and crazy things that happened since then. But like, that spark, there was just this spark of like, okay, let's all solve this problem together. Like, yeah, we do want to solve this problem. And, and what I think is actually kind of interesting is that there were other open source tools at that time, right? There was um, CloudStack, which was called something before that. VMOps or something. Yeah, yeah. And they bought cloud.com, the domain or whatever. Anyway, so there was clouds there. There's Eucalyptus was actually the main one that I was aware of. Eucalyptus, um, there's the Open Nebula. Right, yeah, Open Nebula, yeah, that was there. So it, was, it wasn't like, okay, there is no open source for doing this. There was like uh, Nimbula, which was also interesting. 
that was the yeah nebula open source thing but yeah nebula got got <laughs> no i got bought by oracle at some point but yeah so there was it wasn't like there's nothing out there but like like we you know i guess and sort of like right now the the, the big hot topic is licensing and you know what's open open core and Actually, i want to make a quick aside because in yeah. some ways OpenStack would never have existed if eucalyptus understood how to build an open source community yeah, you're absolutely right. And that, that actually didn't occur to me till like right now while we're talking that this is a parallel to what's going on right now. Like this is why I'm so glad we're doing a podcast about this because like, like the actual story with Eucalyptus was uh, they had, it was an open core model. They had an open source community distribution and they had their enterprise version. And there was, so there were specific people actually from, from NTT in Japan who were trying to commit patches to Eucalyptus to add features that they wanted. They were like, we're running this software. So, I, I know this story. Let's back up even a little bit more. Okay. because right. the, the, um, it, It's related to this story too. So there's, there's a bunch of people that are excited about being able to run an open source cloud. Eucalyptus is this, um, what is it? UC Santa Barbara. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah it's one of the and they, and they made this kind of, you know, API compatible, right. Amazon cloud backbone. And I remember yeah, Rich, uh, was the, Rich was the founder. Yeah. Rich, um, Wolski. Yeah. Yeah. And they did the, cause I remember also they, they announced the, at velocity in, uh, uh-huh. in California. So it's like, okay, Eucalyptus, people get excited. People try to run it. There's a bunch of, you know, operational issues as there always is. And then in particular, you run up into, uh, this this scaling problem, right? So it's essentially a monolithic architecture mm-hmm. with a kind of c- centralized Java process that has to manage all this scheduling. And at a certain number of nodes, like you run into a problem scaling architecture. Mm-hmm. And this is the first the first pass of what Anso Labs tried to build because they're they essentially trying to build a platform as a service for mm-hmm. NASA. And they started it on Eucalyptus and they uh-huh. ran into the scaling problem before they kind of flipped the table and said, we're going to rewrite this thing in, in Python and RabbitMQ or whatever. Right, right. Uh, more of like an asynchronous message-driven architecture instead of a monolith. And then at the same time, a bunch of other people are running into the same kind of scaling constraint. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the story you're telling, NTT had rewritten uh, part of the scheduling so that it would enable a uh, higher scale. Right. So it's like right. they wanted to be able to run at a higher scale, operate mm-hmm. the thing at a higher scale. And they said, here's a patch that will give us like this next phase of, of scale. Mm-hmm. And, and Eucalyptus uh, decided against accepting the patch because they wanted that to be a proprietary feature someone paid for. Right. Yep. Yeah. And, 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 and that was, uh, you're right. And that was a, a, a big impetus for the entire, I mean, within Rackspace, we were just kind of, conceptually saying, yeah, we're going to do something in open source with the only code, you know, we might have some of the old slices code. We might open source. We might not, but we were sort of like, we were probably just going to re We were, we basically come to the conclusion we're going to re-architect and rewrite because we bought slices. That was actually a successful acquisition, but it was a VPS, you know, um, and whatever. And it was like, but we'll, we'll, we'll just, we're going to rewrite it. We need to rewrite it. So let's just, we'll just do that in the open. So that was kind of our plan. And then we, we got wind of the fact that NASA, that, which was basically the Ansel Labs company working as a contractor for NASA, 
was wanting to do some sort of open source thing. So it, it actually ended up coming together that originally, you know, we were actually weren't, we didn't even know what they were doing. So we kind of pushed back our date for announcing that we wanted to do an open source cloud thing because we, we kind of had to get sit down with NASA and go, well, why don't we just do something together? And this is, this is where a lot of uh, what uh, became kind of the culture and, the, and sort of the ingrained nature of OpenStack's you know, collaboration model really got sort of, uh, you know, solidified, which was like, we actually put uh, in our wiki on day one, like, we will not be open core. Like, open core is something that we are not going to ever be. And then, and that was just like ingrained from the beginning because we were sort of a reaction to open core. And it was like, uh, at the same time, like we're Apache licensed. So we weren't, uh, you know, it, it, which I was a big fan of. And actually Adam Jacob, when we were in the, the sort of like ideation phase on this, Adam Jacob was one of the people I met with. He's the founder of Chef and probably everybody knows him. But he's, you know, uh, basically gave me his pitch on why the Apache 2 license was the right way to go. And it just like made total sense to me. It was basically like sort of, had the most freedom and you could always argue that and MIT and whatever, like there's a bunch of them, but like it, it was, it was really sort of business friendly, which appealed to me coming from a business background. And it was like, people can basically do whatever they want with it. They can build it into a product. They can build it into a proprietary product. So it's like, we weren't trying to say no one can make it into a proprietary product. It was like, you can do anything you want with it. It was just as a community, the thing that's called OpenStack will never you know, sort of like intentionally be a core to something that's like the enterprise. So like that was solidified in because it sort of came out of the Eucalyptus experience. Well, there's another aspect of this, which is the, I mean, there's this midlife crisis that open source is having where everyone's relicensing and trying to capture the, 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 the recognition as you move into a world where the, the running of code captures more value than the creation of code. Like that's what a service first world cloud cloud service world creates mm -hmm. uh, that OpenStack was by design from the Rackspace perspective going to monetize as a, as a service offering. Like we're going to run this code for people and they're going to pay us for the, for running it, not necessarily pay us for having the code right. where a lot of what you're seeing driving some of these relicensing is a single entity is responsible for most of the code and they were founded and funded to, to capture that value. And so they're kind of scrambling to one, um, figure out ways to protect themselves or, or you know, whatever the language you want to use for yeah. the cloud service providers, and then also build their own managed services. Yeah, it's a really good point is that, is that the, you know, the two essentially like sort of founding entities, if you will, around, around OpenStack were Rackspace and NASA, neither of which were software companies. They were, you know, one is just offering a service so we can do cool stuff in space and then analyze lots of data and research stuff. And the other, you know, was a, was a cloud services, you know, company that by, by definition sort of like didn't, you know, they were running, they wanted to run MySQL as a, as a service and all this stuff. So it was like, it just, it was, it was they, the two companies that sort of set the rules, if you will, or set the, set the kind of original cultural founding of it didn't have, didn't have sort of like an agenda to create a software company. Like they weren't like, let's make sure that when this is all said and done, our software company is on top or survived because we didn't have a software company. We had a service company. So I think that that is a huge part of why, uh, like we had sort of some resources and some 
and some ability to invest in kickstarting this thing, you know, because we had a way to monetize it that wasn't uh, that wasn't predicated on other people not having access. And and I and I I think I look back now and I realize, you know, the way OpenStack has has come about and the way we do open source is, is actually not the norm at all. I, I think from being in the bubble for a while, I thought, well, this is just kind of like the way a lot of open source is done. It's just like, it's not at all, actually, you know, it's, it's actually kind of, I'm not going to use the overused unicorn, but it's, it's a rare thing. You know, it's actually just not really the most common model. The most common model, I mean, depending on how you, how you box open source is sort of like one dominant company, you know, uh, or, or it's just like, hobbyists and maintainers and and we're all just kind of like wishing that they keep it alive because we've accidentally built the whole web on it or whatever like those <laughs> the two extremes but like uh the, this idea that like there's lots of companies that are all welcome to come in and monetize it but none of them are sort of like we don't want any of one of them any one in particular to sort of like dominate it it, it actually you know i think turns out to be not not the most common so then I'm curious the predictions kind of for what this whole midlife crisis of open source, like what will happen, like with all the cloud providers and all these like random VC backed companies and like, it's a weird world. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I have any crystal ball that's any better than anybody else's. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I agree, I guess with, Steve O'Grady, you know, if I was to sort of pick somebody who's, who's thought and written the most about this that I almost sort of, sort of line with, which is like these things, these companies doing are doing are not open source, but again, you know, semantic arguments sort of fuel a lot of people's time, but I, I find them kind of boring after a while. Like if we can call it open source or not, but like it's, it's essentially not because like it's people aren't really free to do much with it. With this, open like, core by definition is actually selling proprietary software. Yeah, right. It's, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, what's the word, a distinction without a difference or whatever, like the phrase, but basically, yeah, it's, 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 it's proprietary software with like a, a little uh, thing that says, Oh, we'll throw in this code, but you're never going to use it. So it's, it's essentially proprietary software. And so I, I guess, you know, the question is like, does, does this just mean like proprietary software makes a big comeback, um, which I don't think is likely. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think proprietary software never went away, right? And if you look yeah, that's at- that's very true, yeah. That's like, very true. I, I think you, you just have like cycles where things are fashionable and, and for the last uh, run of this 10 years or so, um, going back even more, the, especially for infrastructure, uh, there's been a big focus on open source and, and making open source companies. But then the proliferation of the JavaScript and the rest of it, like there's just an assumption about open source and maybe in some cases, no one monetizes it. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. it just creates value independently, but then it's not really captured. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the flip, the other way of looking at no one monetizing it is everyone monetizing it. <laughs> they're monetizing, they're monetizing yeah. other aspects of it, right? Like yeah. what, I, what I predict and what I believe is that if you create value that your customers are willing to pay for you, pay, pay you for, then you're going to be able to build a business and be just fine, right? So if, if people aren't paying you, like figure out how to make them feel like they get value in that exchange. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, there's, no, there's no reason why uh, kind of single company open source uh, has to exist, you know, as a business model indefinitely. If it goes completely away, I mean, that might be bad, but I, I don't know. I mean, I would actually argue in some ways it never existed. Like in some ways it never existed. Like there's a bunch of weird signals that got set by precedents that people, like if you look at the, at the exits for things like MySQL, which everyone held up forever as like this open source thing, like what was their fundamental business? And, and then look at the result on the company that bought them. Right. Like, is that, a, is that a successful outcome? I mean, certainly some people got paid, investors got paid, but kind of set a precedent that was not reproducible. It wasn't a pattern that you could, you could recreate. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the other one that everybody loves to talk about is Red Hat yeah, because it's sort of like, you know, seems to be the one company that ever that sort of cracked the code. And it's like, you know, and then, of course, they got acquired um, for a lot of money. But they, they it's interesting. I, I think they're sort of like um, uh, get paid to kind of backport things to older versions of software so you can keep running it. And there's a business value in having a business partner who will backport for you to things you don't want to upgrade all the time. And it's a big enough market. Like that, if, if that is just the definition of your, of your plan for making money, maybe there's not a, a huge, you know, a, a market for lots of those companies, but there certainly was a market for Red Hat and then they got bought for whatever billions of dollars. So, I mean, Red Hat, Red Hat existing is proof, existence proof of that, that the market wanted is something like Red Hat. I, I um, have had, you know, mixed relationship with Red Hat over the last however long decades actually. And, you know, I used to run it in a lab and went before it was um, monetized as directly as it is now. But I feel like what they actually sell, and, and I don't think this is reproducible, is indemnification. Yeah. So they they kind of sell this insurance policy. And, and you got to understand, like, the whole dynamics of when they're born. So they're born in this world where there's all sorts of FUD against open source software it's not the world now where it's kind of the de facto standard and, and they're overcoming the inertia of organizations so that their you know, legal and procurement or whatever will sign on to taking advantage of the gift that is the Linux kernel or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, yeah. I completely, I completely uh, it's definitely insurance. But yeah, I think insurance is a, uh, is a good way to summarize it. And, you know, that's it, how big is the total insurance market? It's like a trillion dollars or something. I don't know. It's a big number. So it's, it's I think we may have lost, lost Andrew. Jess, throw back to Jess, you. He, uh, his computer gets all weird because it's Mac. Um, <laughs> but yeah. What do you think, Jess? Um, I mean, I feel like I haven't seen necessarily as many of, of these cycles go through as you will. Um, but I do think it's just interesting to see these kind of cloud providers just eat companies, like yeah. so many acquisitions, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say like, although, you know, I don't sort of feel that there's this dire state of open source that a lot of people are think the sky is falling. I do think that 
you know, putting aside the open source piece, just, just a result that let's say 10 years from now we wake up and there's three companies in the world that, that are the way everyone gets computing. And by the way, computing is the way all problems are solved would be a bad result. I, I don't think that we're necessarily like headed there. I think it, it's, you know, um, but we have to think about it. I mean, the, 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 I had an exchange uh, with, uh, you know, Matt from AWS on Twitter a couple of days ago about this and it was like, you know, the total amount of infrastructure in the world, the amount of it that's being run inside, you know, basically AWS, Microsoft and uh, Azure and, and Google Cloud is actually really small. Yeah, it's very small. Um, and even though it adds up to billions of dollars, like it's just sort of like, you know, it's not the end. And, and so it's just that, it's yeah. billions of dollars in a market that's like a trillion dollars. Yeah, exactly. And so I always look for like, what's, what's the, what's the one level back you can step and look at a bigger context and say, like, are people, you know, panicking for the, you know, for the wrong reasons. And, and I mean, all, all this is embedded in these big economic cycles. And, mm -hmm. and another one that might be, um, interesting is if you look at the big picture, you know, everything that we talked about so far has kind of been US centric, but there's a lot of people that aren't in the US. Uh, and they Very also have 95% in fact, of people are not in the US. It's my favorite fact. Keep going. <laughs> no, so you I mean, I, I just see like some shifts where, you know, whatever we've enjoyed the kind of like US centric technology position but i'm not sure that that holds for you know mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think you know uh, i've been to i went to china three times last year and um a couple times gonna you know playing this year and 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 i think just just maybe just got back from china and it's just like it's a fascinating um world because you know it is an extremely uh I guess, you know, the second largest community of OpenStack people in the world is in China in terms of community members, developers, and things like that. Our next summit is actually going to Shanghai in November. So it's the first time in mainland China. So uh, I'm actually like to hear what Jess's experience was uh, being going to China. I think you're, you're in Beijing. I mean, I, to me, it's just like a mind, you know, expanding experience and just quite different. Um, I thought it was cool. Like, I mean, honestly, and of all the people that I spoke to, I mean, I also was at a hacker conference. So I think a lot of people were super paranoid about me going, but when I was there, I was like, everyone's super nice. Um, and there were some really cool people that I met, but then also just the whole like, uh, kind of center of Beijing that is like kind of technological. They have mm -hmm. like those, those super marts or whatever, which I want to go to the big one in, uh, Shenzhen or something. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like if you were to go to the end of the world in some sort of sci-fi movie and wanted to build a computer, you'd go to one of those or something. It's like, <laughs> I, I'm torn between it's disgusting and also the best thing ever. Um, yeah, yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah, it was cool though. Like that was dope. I was, I, that was, that was dope. I mean, I thought China was cool. Yeah, I, mean, I, just, I think like, in this sort of ideal world and maybe it's a little bit of, you know, you know, idealism or whatever, but I think that open stack and open source has, has led me into kind of just really believing in working on things across companies, but also across countries and sort of, it's an individual led thing where we collect, you know, I sound like I'm, you know, trying to make a political speech, but like we're, we're collectively sort of deciding what do we want to work on? 
and the whole you know I, ethos of open source theoretically or you know you know historically is sort of like we have different hats and we take off our company hat or whatever but I, i've really seen this happen i mean I've, I've i've been able to kind of like get to know people in china and india and korea and japan and it's like yeah there's just people that are trying to hack on software to automate their infrastructure you know they just happen to speak different languages and have different food and it's like it's so cool to have a common language I love their different problem food. we're solving, huh? I said I love their different food. Yeah, oh, I no, do too. I do too. I also feel like that's super true. Like without open source, I wouldn't know half the people that I know, and like not even oh, half yeah. the people I know, like seventy-five percent of the people that I know. And they also wouldn't be like the most like genuine people that I actually do know um, because of this like ability to actually see through the bullshit almost. Um, yeah. Until yeah. the marketing jackals showed up. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we, that's why, you know, it's like, we need to be inclusive, except at some point there's always a, a, a lab with a badge on it that you've got to like, you know, no, I'm just joking. But um, yeah, it's, it's true. I think, I think it's sort of a self-selection thing, but in a good way, it's like someone who's willing to work with a person at another company and in another country to solve a problem is inherently sort of like maybe more, like-minded or open-minded, but I mean, the more people we can get working in that fashion, the more we can kind of maybe tilt tilt the wheel or, you know, tilt the world in a little bit better direction, I guess would be my sort of optimistic. Uh, build, build a better future for everyone. There you go. I mean, we can, we are. It's it's like little, little bits at a time, but every time, you know, we have a, 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 a meetup and we have people from you know Korea and Japan and China and you know all over the world and they're all talking about how do we make sure that our revenue queue stays up <laughs> it's like they're not they're not fighting about something else so it's pretty awesome yeah it, it effectively helps us all humanize each other it does yeah it's really cool I love it I'm so happy that I sort of stumbled into open source and that OpenStack became a, a, a like a way for me to get involved and stay involved in open source and got to meet y'all so it's been awesome well i i feel like that's about the length of an episode and we uh i want to thank you for coming and sharing your time and, and insights with us do you have any parting words of wisdom for uh you know someone someone who's coming up in the game think about open source business development software any anything you want to leave the sure uh, I mean, I think that, that look at docs, find a project that you care about. I mean, I, I hate to go off on a slight tangent, but I met, met an entrepreneur the other day in Austin and he said, I learned about OpenStack in high school. And I thought, oh my God, like how much gray hair do I have? Like this is, he started a company, he's raised money. And he's like, I learned about OpenStack in high school. And I'm like, are you trying to make me feel old? But anyway, point is, he said, when I learned about it, I saw there was this, this little, you know, plug in for, for Swift and I wrote the docs for it. I'm like, this is so cool. So like, if you want to get started, write some docs, like their docs always need help in every open source project. It's the best place to start. That's very true. Um, sorry, the dog has a squeaky toy. So I say we got it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thank you. Just add to the weird, the squeaky toy bonus. <laughs>